This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons who faithfully support the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are an extremely small team comprised of just two families with a passion for stories and image bearers. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories and rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value this work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way you can support us is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but it has a big impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen. This week, we will be sharing David and Margaret's story over two episodes. Today, we will be featuring part one of David and Margaret's story. David and Margaret were thrilled when David was hired at an SBC church in the Kansas City area. David's interview process was long and strenuous, but once he got the job, he was eager to step into his new worship and youth pastor role. Margaret, who was working at the time, quit her job and the family moved closer to the church. But there were concerns early on. David was working full-time hours for part-time pay, and they were struggling to take care of the basic needs of their family. There were unrealistic and unhealthy expectations from David's lead pastor. The environment was tense and toxic, and David's health began to be impacted. Despite these challenges, David and Margaret loved their new community. They opened their home for meals, late-night talks, or to people who just needed a safe place to stay. David and Margaret faithfully loved and counseled church leaders, elders, and pastors of the church and their families. But that faithfulness almost cost David his life. And when he needed those same leaders to stand up for him and his family, they were met with silence. I'm Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. And by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. We are honored to have David and Margaret with us here today to talk through their story, uh, which revolves around their time at an SBC church in the Kansas City area. David and Margaret, welcome. Thank you for coming forward to share your story. And I would like to jump in with understanding a little bit more from you, David, about how you joined the staff of this particular SBC church. Yeah, so the SBC world at the time was um, going through a lot of emphasis on church replanting, which they're still doing um, through their North American Mission Board. And I was looking to take my first, quote unquote, big boy pastoral position, if you want to think of it that way. So a mutual friend um, told me, hey, there's a, there's a church replant in the area who is looking for someone to take on what we call a slashy role worship and youth in this case. So it's worship slash youth. So he introduced us. And so that was my introduction to the church and to the guy who had taken on the role leading there, Pastor In. 
And he had been there for, was I think about 18 months, a little less than that, maybe. Um, so it was pretty new in the role. He and I sat down, we talked a little bit. He presented to me kind of this, this vision of where the church was at and what he was hoping to accomplish. And at the time, it was all pretty exciting to a 23-year-old doofus like me. He had this really exciting idea of wanting to take a church that was that was kind of dying, that was really on the decline, and, and bring some life into it, reach the community, disciple believers, build up a, a church that was really genuinely about loving one another and centering the, the gospel message in ways that um, really hit where I was at at the time, and in a lot of ways, still am and always have been. It was, uh, he had a pretty heady pitch. Margaret, I don't remember our first conversation about it. Well, I think the important thing is that you went in and you had been in a ministry role already. Yeah. And what the thing that you emphasized with him over and over again and with the pastoral search committee team was that you wanted it to be a pastoral role. Yeah, I had been serving in a role that you'd call like a minister or director type position. I mean, that was great, but you know, we felt called to pastor. And so that was part of what excited me about it was that the course of our conversations, I had been really clear, listen, if this isn't a pastoral role, I'm not your guy. Like if you just want someone to, to get up and, and lead music, that's fine. Uh, but that's not me right now. I, I want to pastor. I want to shepherd. And we were in agreement on this, um, at least as far as I could tell out of the gate. There was, there was this acknowledgement that, yes, we want to bring you on to be a worship pastor. We want you to bring you on to be a pastor to our people. And so that was really the only reason we said yes. And if I remember, David, right, and you as well, Margaret, there was numerous interviews where this was reiterated that you would be a worship pastor, right? Yeah. Yeah, we had uh, meetings with the pastor. We had meetings with the pastor and the um, search committee twice. And every time I was repeating the same line, if you are just looking for someone to lead worship, I'm not your guy. All right. So you both make a decision to essentially join this church, come on staff, but it's a big sacrifice, right? It's almost like you have to, you're, where are you geographically right now in relation to where this church is? Yeah, we were living, it was like a 40 minute commute from where we were and I had been working full time, but um, we had a baby and I was hoping to transition into um, staying home with her. We knew that this role, they wanted to find the worship pastor first and then find a youth pastor. They were like, let's hire you as the worship pastor and then we'll probably hire you for the youth pastor position quickly thereafter. But we were having to commute pretty far. It didn't, it didn't something come up between a conversation with David and Pastor N where, David, you were told, like, you need to just, you know, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know if this is what said, but so these are Jay's words. Man up and move. You got to be here. Was that something like that? Yeah. Within a month of us starting there, um, one of the, the uh, things that happened kind of out of the blue is I get this email from Pastor N, and it's like two or three paragraphs long where he tells me, in no uncertain terms, if you want to serve on this staff, if you want to continue to serve on the staff, you're going to have to move here um, as soon as possible. He leaned on a couple of levers in that email that I just did not see coming. What He leaned on one hand on like the supervisor kind of thing, like, okay, you've taken this job and this is an instruction, but he also pulled the line out as your friend. I think you need to consider this kind of thing, right? I barely knew this dude. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it hit me weird, but I was also 23. And in the SBC world, um, jobs are can be difficult to come by. And we were dependent on this income at this point already. That wasn't an expectation that had been communicated before we took the job. Just sort of a like, well, you know, over as time goes on and things develop, you know, we'll, we'll get we'll get closer eventually. Uh, but here we are a month in and I'm getting this power flex message like you got to move now. We were still on a lease and we had we'd been looking, but there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot available. And so there's all this pressure on us out of the gate to uproot our lives at enormous personal financial cost with absolutely no guarantees that anything that we talked about at this point was actually going to happen. And was the church open to helping with any of those financial things? It was a very, like throughout our time there, the members were always quite generous with us, mm -hmm. especially as it related to David's health, which will be more of the story going forward. But there was certainly nothing about like adjusting pay package to accommodate this. Like moving costs. Right. Yeah. Right. I can't praise the members of that congregation at the time enough in terms of what they did do. I think they, they did everything that they had information to do with, if that makes sense. I don't think they totally understood what exactly was going on. But the minute that, that we moved, they jumped um, and provided vehicles and bodies to help us get out there. And that was great. Uh, but in retrospect, I don't think they realized what was going on. I think they thought we were moving because we were ready to move. Right. What happened early on, David? You come, you move, you make this giant leap of move. You're only on part-time salary right now, right? Mm -hmm. With the hopes of yeah. being full-time. And you guys broke your lease, I'm Broke guessing. your lease. Yep. New baby, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I yep. quit my job. So, so you're, you're all in. Yeah. And we, we had a little bit of savings and we were told that like, this would be pretty fast, that it would go from being a part-time role to a full-time role pretty fast. To make the move, Margaret had to, to quit her job, right? And I think that's, it's, it's worth saying if you're, if you're listening to this and you've never experienced this before, there's this, there's a ton of emphasis in evangelical culture on making these sort of big leaps of faith and uh, trusting God's sovereignty to sort of take care of you and all of this. And for young guys like me who were just getting into the, into the pastorate, there was a ton of advice at the time that like, look, if your senior pastor says jump, you say how high. Um, I remember one prof telling me if he says crap, you say what shape the mentality was that, yeah, if your senior pastor tells you to do something, you do it. And if he's wrong, uh, that's between him and God. And it's your job to just do it and, and deal with it. And so this wasn't necessarily a thing that was going on in that church. This is just in evangelical culture broadly. Um, for these young guys, you just, you do what you're told. And so if he says, move, you move. If that means your wife's got to quit her job that's carrying most of your income and you got to sort all that out, sort it out. Because it's not just your boss telling you to do that. It's your spiritual authority. And there's it's hard to like quantify the amount of weight that that carries. Now, to make matters worse, right before this happens, like a couple of weeks before, we're there at the church for our second Sunday. And we're in this new members class. If you're not familiar with how this works in churches like this, um, membership's taken very seriously, um, for better or worse. And part of that means going through a member's class to get familiar with the culture and the doctrine of the church. And so that's what we were doing. And so we're in this class with a couple of other people who are joining the church. And we get to this section where Pastor Inn's taking us through how the church is structured. It's polity. And he asks 
the room the question how many pastors does our church have and the air like went out of the room because everyone was like this is like it the way he like the tone he said it in it was just like so weird everyone was instantly like on edge he could have a pin drop and so one of the guys sitting to my right looks around and he thinks about it for a minute and he goes well i'll just say it uh two <laughs> and they're both here in this room yeah and pastor in goes uh, well, no, actually. And then proceeds to explain that I'm not a pastor, that I haven't been chosen by the church to be a pastor. He's the only pastor we've got. And it goes on to talk about how there's all this, you know, confusion in uh, church culture over who, who pastors are and what pastors do and so on and so forth. And sort of goes on with the spiel. I'm sitting there totally shell-shocked. Like, wait a minute. I went through, this was a, it's worth saying that hiring process was like eight months um, I went through an eight-month hiring process being as clear as humanly possible about what I thought I was coming on to do. And I had multiple affirmations from multiple people, not just Pastor In, saying, this is what your role is. And it's funny, in retrospect, when I walked in the first Sunday, the sign on the door of my office said, worship leader. What the heck? And I didn't think about it at the time because it's not all that uncommon for churches to apply labels like that to pastoral staff. So I didn't think about it. And in the moment that he said, no, we've only got one pastor, I knew immediately that that sign was deliberate and that he was sending me a signal just as much as he was anybody else. I had just been too naive to see it. Such a weird flex, but also very telling. He was very much setting the tone. Oh, yeah. And again, this is where that culture piece comes in of, well, if your pastor says do X, Y, or Z, you just do it. If he's wrong, it's between him and God. And so I shut my mouth. And I would say that over the next seven years that we were there, I saw similar strategies from him multiple times where he would get the church to agree to one thing in the business meeting. We called them members meetings. And then they would agree to it and he would do something completely different. And it was like no one would even notice that he had done something different. So Pastor N flexes on you, David. What, what do you two, after that, what happens? What's the dialogue when you get home between you and Margaret about your role, why you moved? I mean, what is it? How does that, what does that look like? I know we talked about searching for a new job. Oh, yeah. Keep in mind, that happened before we moved. He sent me that you must move email like two weeks after this. Yeah. So we're driving 40 minutes back to our apartment. And I'm like, this is not what we like. Was I not clear? I mean, I immediately shifted into self-doubt mode. Like, I downshifted hard into, I must be the idiot here. Right. Like, what did I miss? Or how did this happen? And how am I at fault for it? Right. Yeah. And I <sighs> I hadn't been invited to a whole bunch of the interview process. And so, like, I couldn't even validate for him what had happened in those meetings. And in retrospect, that's insane. I mean, like, uh, we were being asked to upend our whole lives in a really significant way, and my wife wasn't asked, and I wasn't smart enough to insist that she be there. <laughs> no, you did. You did, David. Did I? I was like, I should be there. I need to be able to get a feel for this place. And they were like, no, we'll, we'll bring you in later, in later on. And so basically, I was at a dinner a couple of weeks before you went in view of a call, but that was it. You're right. They kept telling me, well, when it gets serious, we're going to bring Margaret in. When it gets serious, we're going to bring Margaret in. I forgot about that. Yeah. If I could go back and slap 23-year-old B in the face and be like, they don't care about your wife, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were all raised to not care about women, including ourselves. I mean, I didn't care about me either, so. I know. I'm like, <laughs> I didn't care about me. I wouldn't have cared about her either because I just thought that's what it was, you know? That's what we were told it was. Yeah, for sure. 
So when does Pastor N then pivot the conversation back to you, David, to where you start to bring topics up like, hey, like I, I'm not making enough money and I'm not doing the role that you, you told me. So that's messy. <laughs> well, I, I remember I went and tried to like buy groceries and money was so tight and I was really struggling to stay within this part-time budget. To And so I said, David, when you go to work today, you need to talk to Pastor N and say like, what is the timeline on, you know, getting the youth pastor role included in your title so we can move to a full-time salary? Because it's been three months. And at this point, I don't think the committee had even started meeting. I don't think it had even been formed. Well, yeah. So a little background on this is they had, and that's part of why we were frustrated. The committee existed. They existed during that eight-month interview process for the worship position. They were meeting. They were putting together job descriptions. They had met several times. And at this point, they'd interviewed me twice. So three months in, I've taken two interviews, and the committee chair, um, who was just a gem of a guy, sat down with me on a Sunday, and he said, look, we've basically made our decision. It's you. We're really just, we just got to get everyone in the same room and say, yes, let's do this, and we'll go forward. And he told me that in like month two. Um, so we're like two months in, and he tells me this, and I'm like, okay, all right, I, I can hang in another couple of weeks. We'll make this work. Well, time goes by. A month passes. And now we're six weeks past that conversation that I had with him approximately. And so I'm beginning to get the impression that something's gone sideways here. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to talk to Pastor Ann and I'm going to tell him, look, man, you asked me to move out here. You like sold me on this role on the basis of this particular title that apparently I don't have and job responsibilities that I apparently don't have. You've told me all along the way that this thing is going to happen. And I've got people in like the committee decision makers telling me that this thing is like ready to go. What's happening? He reacted to that as though I'd slapped him. And, and, and to, to be fair, like I was 23 and I probably came with more heat than that conversation needed because I was upset. I'm not a temperamental guy. That's just not my, that's not my bent. So I expect that probably surprised him a little bit because um, I'm generally pretty even keeled, but I came at him with a little bit of like, Hey man, like we've got a problem. And so he called me insubordinate, said that if I couldn't afford to take the position, I shouldn't have taken it. And that if I couldn't afford to move, I shouldn't have moved. And so I was like, look, I don't think you get it. And so this was, this was the first real like clash we had where I was like, I don't think you get it, man. Like I'm pawning stuff to pay for groceries. This is not a joke to me. Well, he said, we're not having this conversation or we're not going to do this. So he shut me down and I drove home because Margaret wasn't there that it was a Wednesday night. I drove home that night thinking I'm gonna get fired and we'll just have to figure this out because it was, that's, that's the, that was the temperature of the conversation. I got home to an email from this dude saying it was really disrespectful. Um, how dare you, you know, ask questions like that. Like you don't know anything about what's going on. And he hit me right where it hurt this guy was scary good at this. He, he had identified the, the main insecurity I had at the age of 23, which was that I really wanted to be a good pastor and I really wanted to be like a good like employee. I wanted to be easy to work with. And he hit me there. He punched me right in that spot and it just took all the wind out of me. I immediately responded with this, this, this servile fawning like – man, I'm really sorry. Like, I didn't mean for it to come off that way. Like, how do we, you know, like, and he said, look, we'll, we'll talk on Sunday and we'll clear the air. And he did this thing. It was the first time he did this. And he pulled it on me so many times where he brought me into his office and he pulled good cop. Hey man, I get it. You're under a lot of stress. This happens. 
look, we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll do some things for you. I'm going to pull some strings and we're, we're, we'll make this happen for you quickly. I was so grateful. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. And just lapped that up. Oh my gosh. That's so disorienting. Like that's textbook Darvo. You use that a word? Well, kind of, because he didn't make it. Well, yeah, I guess in the moment he made himself a victim of you, like he had been wronging you, but then he made himself the victim. And how dare you do this to me? Margaret, in that moment, what were you thinking? So I think one of the hardest things about being in that spouse role is your helplessness, right? Mm -hmm. Because like it's happening to you and to your children through your spouse, but your spouse is getting worked yep. and you have no ability. You're never going to be in the room when it's happening. And there's a way in which like everything is so stacked against you. You need this job. Your, hu your husband feels like he has to provide. He is being so spiritually abused and like having that need to provide you used against him and keeping him in the abuse and it's almost like when you point out like, no, like we need money, <laughs> like we can't keep living on this salary. Like you're actually like almost digging the jab that he placed there of like, you're not a good provider in further. And so it's this like awful situation that does, it does pit like husband and wife against each other. Yeah. And I'm not saying that yeah. just from our life, like I see that happen in other ministry mm -hmm. couples all the time. And how do you, in that moment, like... In a normal instance, you might be like, I'm finding another job. But you've spent like a year at this point, either interviewing or just coming on to staff. So it's like you're committed here. And we were like yeah. financially incapable of doing anything else. Yeah. And David didn't have a degree in anything else to like go find a different job. It's difficult to overstate how much shame is tied up in that, too, because the church we had left was wonderful. We loved them, like had a great, like just great experience there in a lot of ways. And they had been so enthusiastic for us and they had prayed for us and they'd gathered around us and sent us out. So there was this big thing of like, hey, look at David, like, you know, he cut his teeth here and now we're sending him out to go do ministry somewhere else. We're so excited for him. And so there's this like shame element of, okay, I got to go back to these people and say, I couldn't cut it, you know? And then there's the element of we were in like we were very in seminary culture at that time. I mean, in Bible college, getting my degree, and then there's there's these levels of cloud and just silly social status things that are there, just like they are at any you know college or university. And and being the guy who's got a ministry job and is in Bible college, there's this like there's this degree of pressure there to stay in it. You get told, I've had a dollar for every time I walked into a chapel service and somebody said, hey, now 95% of y'all aren't going to make it to ministry to the end. Do you want to be part of the 95%? No, you want to be the 5% that make it all the way. I, I, I could have taken Margaret out to a really nice steak dinner. It would just the, so the pressure to stay in it no matter what's happening is just ever present and it's coming from every direction, even well-intentioned ones. It's interesting too, now that you say that, I'm thinking through like the spiritual warfare element that is like so... Mm -hmm present in these spaces, especially like the young, restless, reformed world. It's like, I feel like pastors are conditioned to think this is just spiritual warfare and my ministry has to continue. And like my ministry is going to do so much and impact the world in such great ways that I'm just having to struggle this hard because mm -hmm. of that, because Satan's attacking me. So I just have to keep going. And what's really interesting nuance to that is 
a lot of times what we see on our side of things is people like Pastor N using that. And it's like, oh, this staff member that they don't like or they've targeted is speaking up or having a hard time. And that's their spiritual warfare is this poor staff member and their ministry has to continue. So it's just kind of like this toxic soup bowl of like a pressure cooker and it's unsustainable. Like, I I mean, Mm. we're seeing pastors kill themselves because of this. Like that's the reality of this situation. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, you know, from the get-go, we were being honest with some people about different things that were going on, but it was always like, oh yeah, he shouldn't have done that. But there was never any support, any accountability, any going to him, any like, oh, like I don't think anyone understood that when Pastor N was having a bad day or when Pastor N said these things, the like emotional, physical, and spiritual effect how bad it was in our bodies, in our lives, in our homes, in our family. And it needed to be addressed and we needed to have support. It wasn't just like, you know, have grace for him. Yeah, this is something he struggles with because that's what we'd be told. But it's like, no, this is literally killing us. Gosh, I'm so sorry. That's so stressful. I think anybody listening to this that has been in a church staff setting. Or a work setting, just a work setting too. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, is like in a work setting, you feel it too, right? It's so, I mean, Jay, you've probably felt that. I'm sure you have. But then you add in the spiritual component of this person is like God's mouthpiece for your life, basically. And so there's so much identity that's wrapped up in it that like, you're like, does God view me this way? Have I failed God? Was I, what did he use? Insubordinate to God? Am I not submitting myself to God when I ask these questions? Like, the amount of turmoil that happens within you, it's like every part of you that God says is valuable and cherished and like worthy of care and attention is questioned and diminished as much as possible. And David was coming home multiple times a week, just absolutely broken. Like either one of the volunteers under his care had done something just like a normal human error or even just a difference in creative opinion from Pastor N and Pastor N would attack David over that or David would not move on something quickly enough or Pastor N would communicate poorly about something and so David would do what he thought Pastor N had asked for and then Pastor N would get upset when David did exactly what he asked for but like hadn't communicated well about or if on his days off David didn't answer the phone within, you know, answer every text message within 30 seconds, he would get in trouble for that as well. I literally have a document from 2016, 2017, where he lays out his expectations for how quickly I'm supposed to respond to communication. And in there is like, you respond to text messages within one minute. Uh, unless it's your day off and then it's 15. Uh, it was an hour. Like if a day off, I had an hour. I had an hour. An hour. Yeah. yeah. I am horrified. I just, everything inside me wants to yell. A uh, point of pride is that when he handed me that document, I laughed at him. <laughs> oh, my god! There you go. You have like one little semblance of like, I stood up to the man here. <laughs> that That's was it. late enough in the game that he had to give that one up. Um, yeah. So we, we agreed on 24 hours. <laughs> but that was Gosh. his original draft. I, th- I think about like if he wrote that document, someone taught him that. Yeah. Right. And someone taught the person that taught him that. I mean, it's just like a cycle and like how frightening mm-hmm. How frightening is that, that that exists? That probably exists somewhere else too today, which is even scarier to think about. 
If yeah. you too have experienced receiving a document where yeah, you have to respond yeah. within one hour of receiving a text message, feel free to reach out. <laughs> I mean, I fail that daily. I think another one other thing that's really important from this time is that during the interview process, David had been very clear that he was not fully reformed, fully Calvinist. Oh, yeah. And that was like, okay, yeah, we can work with that going forward because it was very much a young, restless, reformed church. It was trying to become that. It was trying to become YRR. But that was another thing that he was constantly writing you about to the point where when you guys went to T4G that year, in front of three other men in the church, in the middle of the night, he came into your hotel room basically, like, attacked you, like, came at you, trying, like, apologetics, like, trying to get you to agree to be Calvinist. Yeah. So if you're not a Calvinist, this is going to sound extremely esoteric. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Suffice it to say that of the five points of Calvinism at the time, I only held to four. And so I wouldn't How claim the label. How dare you? Oh, I know. You, were I know. you only two lit? <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> uh, actually, I was I was two it. I was two it. Couldn't do limited atonement. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Definite atonement. That's what we're calling it now. Point is, I wasn't a five-pointer, and they knew that going in. Pastor N knew that going in. So among all of the other issues that he's got with me, um, which really just boiled down to personality differences, he was he's very type A, very driven, very results-oriented. I prefer to think slowly, make decisions slowly. He was constantly on me about this fine doctrinal point. So we went to this conference together, T4G, and there's us and two other guys from the church, and as happens at T4G. It's a, it's a Calvinist conference, was a Calvinist conference. And so conversations about Calvinism are happening constantly. And I'm constantly having to kind of say, well, I, I'm a four-pointer, but I don't call myself a Calvinist. I don't, I don't think the system, like, I don't think I can claim that name uh, with my current position. And so this was, became a huge point of contention over the couple of days we were at this conference. And yeah, so it culminates um, with a conversation that starts at 11 p.m. after we all return to the hotel room. We're all bunking together. It's Boy Scout camp, you know. And he starts hitting me with texts from Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, and he's trying to persuade me of his stance on Calvinism. And I'm telling him half the time, like, I don't disagree with you. Like, you're like you're going at me. And I, I agree. And then half the time, he's hitting me with things, and I'm like, I, I have a different take on this is that like you knew that going in what's going on here it got so up tempo that one of the guys who came with us was like it, it, it's like midnight it's one in the morning and he's going guys this is not profitable like like pastor and what are you doing like leave the dude alone let's just get some sleep this went on until 3 a.m and so the next morning we get up and i'm exhausted and irritated and not quite sure what to do with myself Pastor in, he goes, hey, you know, like, I, I went at you really hard. Like, let's just get through the day. I'm like, yeah, sure. Well, that evening, John Piper was speaking. Ironically enough, he, Piper delivered a sermon that kind of cut against a little bit of, of Calvinist orthodoxy. And so I'm sitting here and I'm listening to him and I'm listening to him the way that I listened to all sermons in those days. I had my Bible open and I had a commentary that I liked open on my phone and I was taking notes. And Pastor N starts like trying to swap my phone out of my hand, telling me, "Oh, you stop that! Stop taking it. Just listen. You're just you're trying to argue with him. You'd like in your head. You're just like writing down reasons to not agree with what he's saying here." And I was like, "What are you talking about? Like I was literally just outlining his sermon and just writing down like his major points and just like scribbling a couple of my own thoughts in the in the in the margins." And he like harassed me for like forty five minutes trying to get me to like 
just put everything down. And so finally, halfway through, I'm like, okay, buddy, like, good grief. So I shut my notebook, shut my Bible, put it down on my lap. And I'm sitting there feeling guilty for feeling upset at him. And I'm asking myself, am I really just like being like, am I being a squib? Like, am I just being a jerk here? Am I... In retrospect, no. In retrospect, I was just trying to listen to a sermon, but this guy was so in my head. And it, it, again, it had more to do with the culture, really, than anything else at that point. He and I hadn't known each other long enough for him to really get his hooks in me. But I, he was so in my head that I was persuaded that if he said it, I had to give it weight, that I had to take it really, really seriously, even if I didn't agree with it. That whole mess finally I won't say it resolved, but it at least reached a stopping point the following week after we got back from the conference, we had our staff meeting and he kind of offered a half-hearted sort of apology where he was like, well, you know, like I, you're wrong and I still think you're wrong, but like it was probably excessive to go at you like that. And, and I was so ready for peace at that point that I just like laughed it off and said, no big deal, man. And we had a kind of a jokey conversation. And he said, well, when you finally get persuaded of the five points of Calvinism, I want you to call me. Da, 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 da. And I was like, yeah, sure, man, I'll do that. But that was like, that was the thing. He would do this thing where he would cycle on some obsessive issue mm-hmm. and he'd attack and attack and attack and attack and attack for months. And then he'd reach a point where he'd cross a line and either I would punch back or someone else would notice and then there'd be this semi-apology, and somehow he'd also kind of blame you for the fact that it happened in the first place. Which is not an apology. It's just right. It's just him trying to, you know, basically put you in your place using an yeah. apology. But so. you'd be so tired, so yeah. worn out at that point that you just are like, sure, man, whatever. So, David, your health eventually starts getting impacted with all of this back and forth and this tension and the gaslighting that's going on from Pastor Ann. So David, what what health issues did you start having? Yeah, so I have a chronic illness, Crohn's disease, um, and it's very much a stress-driven illness. At the time, I had come off of, a, we'd had some health insurance problems, and so before we got to this church, um, I'd had to have pretty major surgery because we just didn't have access to medication for a while. And that had gone about as well as, as those kinds of things possibly can. And I was recovering, I was doing good, had access to medication. And the medicine that I was taking just kind of quit working. My gastroenterologist, my GI doc, he kept saying things about, you know, I mean, you've got some just like your blood work is strange. You've got these really elevated markers of inflammation. I mean, what, like, what have you got going on? Like, what's going on with you? Yeah, he kept saying, it looks like you're under a lot of stress, like you need to cut stress out of your life. Yeah. And I didn't know, because like, I didn't really know where he was at spiritually, and I had this this sense that I had to sort of protect the reputation of the church. I didn't know how to tell him, oh, yeah, you know that I'm a pastor, because we've talked about that before. My job is killing me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you say that in an environment where there's there's all this pressure to not tell the truth for the sake of, you know, the reputation of the, of the institution. So I didn't do that. So over time, what starts to happen is I'm having these really intense abdominal pains. um, And I won't get into all the nitty gritty because a lot of it's gross, but Mm -hmm. when your bowels stop working, lots of horrible things happen to your body. Mm -hmm. And it started with some relatively mild hospitalizations. I'd miss, you know, four or five days, um, just getting pumped up with prednisone, trying to you know fight off symptoms, and they're trying different concoctions of medication, and and those medications are having a really profound impact on my cognitive ability. Um, 
like my short-term memory, things like that. And so it's creating more conflict at work because now I, I, I go from being a relatively healthy, active 23-year-old to, you know, we're two years deep and I'm having to carry a notebook and a pen everywhere to write down literally everything anyone tells me because I just can't remember. And are you still part-time? At this point, we're full-time. Okay. It took, what, five months after we mm -hmm. got there? Yeah. Like five times part-time. Five months part-time. Yeah. So you go to full-time. You start having uh, health issues early in your years, like first couple, first year, right? First year you're there? Mm -hmm. mm, yeah. Yeah. Then you come on staff full-time, five months in, and then 2016, you start really, you, you're ordained, and that's really where all the health stuff really cranks up, right? Yeah. 2016. Yeah. Okay, cool. So David comes on full-time five months in. He's not ordained yet, but he's full-time. So that's a big relief. And then Margaret, you start to take a, a very unique role um, in the church, more of kind of a, you're more forward-facing, not preaching, not preaching, but more <laughs> forward-facing in the sense that you are helping and doing things that may not be... Um, well, I don't know if it's normal. I shouldn't say that, but you're doing more things for the church. What are you doing? Yeah, I took that help meet thing. Like I'm supposed to be a compliment to the men in my church and I ran with it. So I was like, okay, what's their vision? What are the barriers to their vision that I see a way that I can like address and fix and help support them in these? And so something I noticed very quickly is that like there wasn't really a great welcoming atmosphere in the church. Um, at least nothing was streamlined. And so I took over and developed a welcome ministry at the church. And part of that ministry was, you know, asking new members and guests about their experience visiting the church. And something that came up over and over again is like, this place seems like a great place for my husband. Like we can easily see how he will grow so much at this church, but there's nothing here for the wife that it's just like the church had a very masculine feel. And I was like, yeah, I feel that too. And so then the conversation started being like, okay, so how can I help create like a safe place for women in the church? And so I started a um, women's Sunday school and some women's events and stuff like that. And so I was, I was doing quite a bit working pretty closely with pastor N on several different projects. As a volunteer. Yeah. Unpaid. Yeah. Just mm -hmm. Correct. So I do want to talk about this, get both of your opinions. So you're more willing to kind of share your opinions when you're brought into these spaces, right, Margaret? Yes. Yeah. In the most respectful, kind, quiet way I can, I do share. Yeah, I got, I got, I got to say this here. So yes, Margaret feels comfortable sharing her opinions, but but Margaret in, you know, 2014, 2015, 2016, when she shares her opinions is doing so in like the most low key way you can possibly imagine. Like completely diminishing yourself while you're saying apologizing it. for it. And like, yeah, like when I disagree, I'm making it sound like I agree, but also mm -hmm. like sharing what I actually think. So, David, how were how are the women viewed and addressed in church leadership behind closed doors or I don't know, heck it wide open sometimes, right? What was the view of women in the church at the time? Yeah. So women, um, women didn't really come up all that much except for when there was, you know, perceived to be a problem. 
there was a, there was a woman who had been occasionally leading worship before I came on. And so, you know, if, if something happened where, you know, like I needed to actually, I, I remember one occasion in particular where I wanted her to sing the lead part on a song that was out of my vocal range. And so it just so happened that after rehearsal, um, Pastor Ann and I were talking to the hall. I said, hey, I, I heard so-and-so um, singing up there. Well, what's that all about? And I told him, well, you know, we're singing this song this week, and it's just – it's a little uncomfortable for me. It sits more comfortably in her range. And he kind of gave me a funny look, and it didn't really click for me what that meant, but we just kind of moved past it. But then the next day, he called me into his office, and he says, hey, when so-and-so comes up to lead, I got to admit I'm uncomfortable with that. And it just, it was totally flabbergasting to me. Did he say why? Not at first. Like he, in retrospect, he might've been testing me to see what I was going to say about it, but it just caught me so off guard that I assumed that he had a concern with her ability to technically execute on it. And I was like, no, no, no. Like we rehearsed it. Like she can do it. He's like, no, no, that's not what I mean. And I just like, I, I don't know how I feel about a woman leading the the church congregationally. Well, and the saddest part about that is that she had led worship under yeah. him for 18 months yeah. before we got there. I had no idea what to make of that conversation. And while I had grown up in complementarian churches, the complementarian churches I'd always been a part of had never, like that was never a topic of conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, women led worship in those churches all the time. Women spoke in those churches all the time. Mm. I just, I was completely caught off guard. And when he told me what his problem was, I, I just, I, I kind of vapor locked. I didn't even really know what to say to that. So we agreed on a compromise where... I was going to get up there and when the time came for that particular song, I was going to say, you know, so-and-so is going to sing, would you join her instead of like, he, he wanted to be very clear that I was going to not say anything like, you know, she's going to lead this song, right? She's going to sing, you can join her, right? That had to be the way that we framed that. And so when women came up, it, like it was, it was either that kind of thing or every once in a while we'd have a, you know, we'd have a quote unquote conflict. And in retrospect, I didn't pick up on this at the time, but in retrospect, most of the time when conflict was coming up, it was always with women who had strong opinions about things. And to be fair, there were times when some of those strong opinions were out of pocket. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to take those and just sort of shove them over here to the side for a minute, because that's a thing that happens. I mean, like people sometimes get out of pocket and they do things and they say things and you got to figure out how to like work those conflicts out. That's a thing. Even healthy fine. churches are messy. Yeah. We're messy. Like we're all humans bringing right. our humanity here. And part of being in ministry is being able to disciple messiness, right? Yes. But there was one in particular one woman in particular who is an incredible lady and she had some really strong aesthetic opinions about some things and what she needed in retrospect, what she needed was just to be discipled through change. Mm -hmm. um, it was just a pretty common story where she had some, some aesthetic opinions that um, were pretty concrete and narrow and we were trying to expand our boundaries, right? Like as common as sand, normal pastoral stuff. But Pastor Inn turned it into a into a knockdown drag out war, and he turned me into his deputy in it. And I'm ashamed to say I let him. Mm -hmm. I, I let him like use me as a weapon to break this woman down. Um, when what she needed was just someone to sit and be like, "Okay, you're mad about what, what we're doing here. Will you like let me carry that mad with you?" You know. Yeah, but like that happens so often because David was so much more diplomatic and kind and gentle and genuinely loved these people, and so. He'd be like, yes, please let me handle this conflict so you yeah. don't blast this person. And David would do it and it would feel like we were caring well for them. But like in retrospect, 
we were just like letting him walk all over them, but like not letting people realize that's what was happening. And in that sense, he was using our love of our people against us. Mm, but like, yeah. I just, sometimes I lay awake at night, I stare at the ceiling and I think to myself, I cannot believe that I let this dude like get me to the point where I would jump into conversations where I would be like, no, man, like, let me talk to them. I'll tell them what you want me to tell them. Because I'm thinking, like, look, I'm going to say it. Like, I'm, <laughs> if you say it, you're going to obliterate this person. And if I can say it, I can at least, like, get the message across and we can prevent some harm here. But in retrospect, like, every time he pulled that on me, he was getting me to deliver a message that shouldn't have been delivered in the first place. Right. Well, and another part of this is the fact that discipling like that is not efficient, not mm -hmm. efficient takes a really long time sometimes yeah. it's like arduous you're like come on you don't have to care about this you don't have to care whether or not that plant got moved yeah. why are we having right. this conversation right now but that's why there's so many qualifications in the bible yes. because you have to be a very specific type of person that's able to actually sit with people and disciple that like that's why these efficiency, CEO, growth, numbers, all of the businessy side of church is failing people so bad because that's not what the church is meant to be. Like we're not meant to be right. efficient. Yes. And I have to, I got a mea culpa here because as awful as it was when he'd set his teeth into the hide of sheep, I genuinely believed that it was better for me to put the knife in slowly and gently and softly. Mm. And it wasn't. It was Gosh. probably worse. Yeah. Yeah. And one of my biggest regrets from my time there is that, you know, I really thought that I was helping women by creating a safe place within the church for them to exist and by elevating them to positions of leadership and, you know, going to pastor and saying, Hey, I think, I think you should give this woman this administrative role. She's so good at this. And he would. And then he would use her. Mm -hmm. And what I ended up doing is giving a false sense of safety to a lot of women who I'm now talking to frequently about how hurt they are because while I may have created a place that they could exist and that was safe, it didn't address the basic theological issues of the whole church that created an unsafe place for women in that church. Gosh, wow. That was heavy. really well said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Margaret, honestly, that was... All right, I'm going to move us on. So, David, in 2016, you were finally ordained in the church, correct? Yeah. Okay. So, what is your official title? Not Minister of Ministers. What is, <laughs> what it, what is the title that they crowned you with? Uh, pastor. Just a pastor. Um, just pastor. Not just worship pastor. pastor, not youth pastor. And I asked for that. Okay. I was more convicted than ever at that point that, like, I wanted to get away from this mentality that, like— um, that had been such a a problem for me to be able to kind of do my my job mm -hmm. and care for people. I wanted to get away from this, like, oh well, you know, he's the he's the music guy or he's the youth guy, because we were at this point, like, this whole time, I'd been doing pastoral care and ministry in that role, and really, the people who were a part of the worship ministry and the people who were in the youth ministry were, you know just part of what I was doing. Um, I was meeting with young men. I was meeting with um, married couples doing marriage counseling, premarital counseling, 
um, in addition to all of this other stuff, just like normal, ordinary, everyday pastor things. Hey, man, you're having a hard time with pornography. Let me take you out to coffee. Let, like, let me just pray for you and just encourage you. You know, that kind of stuff. Jonna, this sounds like shepherding. I know. Shocking. So I did, I did find that interesting in your story, David and Margaret, is that, David, you really were—the church leaned on you a lot in the staff for shepherding. And that, that, and a pastor should do that. I, I fully believe that. But what is that dynamic like when you are shepherding others, but your chief shepherd, your chief shepherd, is not doing that for you? Yeah, that was tricky. So this is where I like I have to say this was not a solo project. Margaret and I were doing this elbow to elbow. So this involved a lot of opening up our house. You know, we had two and then three small babies and. We were hosting community groups, and Margaret was doing like the bulk of the heavy lifting on that front. We had people in our house four to five times a week. It was it's the two a.m. phone call thing. We were always there to answer it. That was just kind of how we were bent. That was our energy. That was what we were trying to bring to the table. And again, this is where um, okay, yes, I was doing all this stuff, but but Margaret was carrying a ton of the weight of it um, and doing quite a lot of it herself. Um, so I'm meeting with a lot of people. Margaret's also meeting with a lot of people at this point, a lot of, a lot of women. But also like singles would like sleep on our couch on the weekends so they could have like time with people. And we had multiple times, you know, there'd be like a marital conflict in the church or whatever. Uh, someone had done something like trust breaking in the marriage and the husband would sleep on the couch for a night so that they could have some space and, you know, on our couch, there was just a lot, like it was a lot. We were like. We really loved these people. And I think it's worth saying we loved what we were doing and we loved where we were at in a lot of ways. And that's the thing. I think that if you'd asked us back then, we would have, the first thing we would say is that we love our job and that we love this church and we had no intention of leaving. Sometimes, every six months, David would dust off his resume because of Pastor N. But then, you know, we'd be like, we can't leave. Mm. We love these people. Yeah. So... When this all goes down, ordination was a messy process. To make a really long story about this, I had been putting pressure on Pastor N for the last year because I had kind of reached a point of confidence in myself where I felt like, oh, okay, hey, look, like even without the title, I can do this. Like, yeah. I'm getting it done. Like, we, we're we're bringing people into the congregation and they're growing. Like, all right. So I went to him and I said, look, I, I think it's high time that we talk about this. We need to make this happen now. And he had already been wanting to go in the direction of kind of a nine mark style multiple elders leadership system. Mm -hmm. So this was a so this was me kind of streaming into that conversation. And he didn't take it well. He kind of threatened and and huffed about it. But after six months of being on him about it, he finally said, Okay, yeah, like let's do this. There's you, and then there's one other guy in the church, and we're gonna ordain you and we're gonna move to a multiple pastor's thing. Why do you care about that? Like, I don't understand, like, why. I mean, no, I do kind of understand why someone, I have theories on why someone would care about being the sole pastor, but I can't think of, like, a biblical good, healthy reason, really, in this instance, that someone would be fighting for that. Well, part of what was strange about it was that his rhetoric at the time was constantly about how exhausted he was from being the only pastor mm -hmm. and constantly about how much heavy lifting he had to do and he had to do all this work and he's working 60 hours a week and because he's the only pastor. And so we've got to fix this thing. We've got to get to multiple pastors. And every time I'd be like, hey, man, 
I'm right here. You literally hired me to be a pastor and then haven't let me be a pastor. Mm -hmm. Um, And every time he'd say, well, the church just isn't ready. And it was such a non sequitur. I didn't know how to answer that. Yeah. It's like the church already hired you to be a pastor and then you decided he wasn't a pastor. And now you're pretending that the church is the problem to keeping him from being a pastor, but you really need a pastor. It was all very confusing. So if you're taking phone calls at 2 a.m., people are sleeping on your couch on the weekends, you're ministering to married people, single people, old people, middle-aged people, all people— what the heck is he doing for 60 hours a week? Sermon prep and getting his PhD. Well, there was that. And and then he had his own approach to shepherding that I think is worth pointing out here. He would meet with young single men in groups and take them through books, which I'm not necessarily like, okay, fine. But what was interesting was that he was always telling me I needed to maximize my time with people. And so he he rarely met one on one with folks unless they were people who had like who were above him who had something to give. He'd go out to lunch with like gurus. He'd go out to lunch with professors, that kind of thing. But when he was meeting with people, he was discipling. It was always in groups, and it was always in these sort of very limited chunks. And he was taking them through something where he was presenting them with information. My approach, and this was instinctive. This was not trained. Like I so just I say that to say like this isn't some philosophical thing that was happening. I just. I naturally gravitated toward, hey, man, like, let me take you out to coffee or buy you lunch or whatever, and you tell me what's going on. Um, And so we just had very different approaches. And there's a way in which I think that was really effective because it communicated to different people. But it illustrates the point. He was constantly efficiency-oriented. And to him, meeting one-on-one with somebody, unless it was an absolute crisis, was a waste of time. Yeah, I mean, what you describe, he's running a business. And so he's yeah. got to maximize his return, his time. He needs to maximize his time to get a return on investment because, you know, he is a product or, you know, his ministry is a product. And so he's got to maximize his time. So his focus is how do I, I mean, again, I'm, I'm speaking from what you said. How do I make the most of my time so that we can continue to grow this church and um, make the most money possible? Yeah. Which is weird because, I mean, I think that's a completely wrong, and again, this is me paraphrasing, but that's a completely wrong way to run a church. But if I was going to approach a church that way, I would want David on staff because that would actually increase our productivity and ultimately, hopefully, help us grow. So back to Jonas' point, it's a weird thing for him to want to shut that down all the time. The thing is, is that he had David on staff. He just didn't have David wielding any power. So he wanted to hold on to all the power while still having David do all the work. Yeah. 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 But also, side note, all of us on this call, maybe we could all agree that most of these dudes, I feel bad kind of saying that, but I shouldn't. They are just dudes. (laughs) Most of these dudes would be awful in a business world. They could not run a successful business. The reason that they are able to run these big corporate modeled churches is because they have basically just free labor. The thing about pastor and stated objections to going to multiple pastors sooner was, funnily enough, this idea that he had. And I think in a weird way, I think he meant it. Like, I think he would genuinely thought this that the church wasn't prepared to have multiple pastors because he he kept insisting that they weren't going to see me as a pastor 
um, unless he'd done all this educating first, unless he'd sort of like trained them to see me a certain way and see this other guy a certain way. And so his he had all these benchmarks that we had to hit before we were going to go to ordination, and a lot of it had to do with whether or not he could get people in the congregation to refer to me as a pastor, whether or not he could get people in the congregation to refer to this other guy as a pastor. And every time he brought this up, I wanted to be like, dude, do you want to look at my inbox? Do you see how many of them start with mm-hmm. Pastor David? So like, on one hand, I get that like there are churches who have got like a history and a way of being organized that mean that if you're going to go to multiple pastors and not like a CEO pastor and then multiple like directors of ministry model, you might need some time to like get everyone on board and make sure this is a direction the church wants to go. That was not this church. What he wanted was to inculcate a certain vocabulary and a way of thinking about pastoral authority in them before he ordained anybody. Is there partially like him wanting to educate them on how to treat him? Yes. I I mean, I I think that's a big piece of it because people would routinely disagree with him. And he always had a huge problem with that. He kept an enemies list in his drawer. He didn't call it that. But he kept this list of people in his drawer of people who opposed him. And we'd talk about that list. He would never tell me the names that were on it, but I knew. I mean, like, you just have to pay attention for a little while. Um, These people who who opposed him and who he was you know, praying against. Praying against? Yeah. Um, whatever that meant. Spiritual warfare. Yeah, there it is. And the thing about those people was that their big crime was that they disagreed vehemently with his ideas. Yeah. And again, some of them were out of pocket in the sense that like, okay, there's decisions that need to be made so that we can continue to function and like we need to let those things happen. But like some of them were really just honest to goodness organizational difference or aesthetic difference. Um, and he mm-hmm. wanted to create an environment, I think, where he was weaponizing um, ecclesiological doctrine as it relates to the role of pastors so that he could start saying things that he couldn't say in the current context because he'd built up this notion of what pastoral authority is and what pastoral authority is for. Yeah, and I think it's really important that Every time during any member's meeting, he was pitching the idea of multiple elders, he 100% of the time said, there will be no senior pastor. All pastors will be on the same level and have the same voting weight. And in order for things to pass, we're going to have to be in unanimous agreement. And literally that's what passed. That's what the church voted on. That's what the church bought into. And like the next week after it passed, he was referring to himself as the senior pastor. A common rhetoric we hear, I I mean, I think they're just so similar. Acts 29, SBC, like a lot of people are both like Mm -hmm. all, they're all interwoven nine marks, like all of these different spaces are all kind of like so i bet you there's some that are all three there are yeah um you probably know more than me (laughs) but we hear a lot like this idea that that we're all equal what is it it was in um the reno episode the first among equals yeah prince among equals that was a term that got used yeah Yeah. and that's not a thing (laughs) because that that doesn't even make sense so David, you are ordained. You're working 50 hours a week. Clearly, the environment is not healthy. Margaret, you've got stuff going on at home. You're helping out, David, with not only are you helping out, but oftentimes you're leading things with counseling uh, members of the church, loving on them, people coming over to your house. You have kids. 
There's a lot going on. But you run into a brick wall of health issues, David. What happened? Because ultimately you end up basically having to take a sabbatical because of these health issues. Yeah. Yeah. In 2016, we go to Mayo twice. Mayo Clinic, right? Mayo Clinic up in Rochester. Um, Leave the kids with family members and church members. Go to Rochester to basically have surgery for David to have a colostomy put in. And we ended up spending almost a month there because the surgery did not go well. We were only supposed to be there for 10 days. It didn't go well. And then when we come back, the stoma fails again. He ends up spending another couple of weeks in the hospital in Kansas City and then like was so unwell that the church, we didn't ask for this. The church gave him, it was like by the end of it, he would have had four months off. That included the hospital stays, if I remember correctly. I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease in, in uh, when I was 14 years old. And so it's just something that I'd lived with. Um, I had a what they call a mild to moderate case. Um, when I got into ministry, you know, I'd have issues off and on. It's a, it's a stress-driven illness, so stress makes it worse. Yeah. So in ministry, I'd had problems off and on. Being at this church, I didn't really appreciate at the time how much this was true, but being at this church radically exacerbated my health issues, not because of the church, but working with Pastor N was this constant roller coaster of a, like just adrenal fatigue. Um, there was always drama. And when I say always drama, like I want to be clear here that like, I mean like week to week. I was talking with a guy that I worked with there. He was an administrative assistant there, um, worked, worked with there for a, a while back. And we talked, we were just reminiscing about how crazy it was that there was always somehow some massive crisis that was his fault or my fault, and sometimes both, every single week. And so, needless to say, my guts, like if you like if you took pictures, my guts looked like Swiss cheese. Ugh. And I wasn't healing, because I couldn't. And his doctor kept saying, like, what is going on in your life? Like, you must be under a lot of stress. You need to cut the stress in your life. And we were like, literally, we cannot. Like... <laughs> We have no power to do this. Yeah. So while Margaret is carrying all of this weight, I'm coming home from work and like, I'm in so much pain. Like I, I lived on opiates for a couple of years, literally lived on opiates for a couple of years. I was in so much pain. I would come and I would lay down on the couch and wouldn't move for six hours. I would do everything from there. I'd read books to the kids, do whatever I could to like fold laundry or whatever as I'm laying there. But like I was useless for years because... It was get to work and perform, right? Like get it done so that you can survive being in contact with Pastor In long enough for him to not lose it on you, right? And make things worse. Just like go absolutely hard for 10 hours, get it done, and then get home and like you've got like you got to stop at that point. You got to stop all function. So a big piece of my chronic illness is that Margaret is having to compensate for everything. Which is adding more stress to you too, because you're watching your wife have to do this, but you actually physically cannot change the circumstances while still being at this job. Oh yeah. He would spiral shame and guilt and just like, but meanwhile, like I knew that what he needed, the only thing that was going to change our situation was his stress decreasing. We felt trapped in the church. We didn't feel like we could leave. And we also didn't want to leave because we loved it there. Mm -hmm. And so I was the only stress that I could decrease for him. So I didn't ask him for help with anything. And Mm -hmm. I, I was so exhausted and just so trapped. And 
three little kids. One of them was failure to thrive himself and had health issues himself. And it was just a lot. So I did start pulling back ministry-wise. Like I stepped back from a lot of things in the church, which coincided to like when I started feeling like they trusted me less and didn't want me there anyway. So in the middle of all of this, we're, we've got mounting medical debt. And so at the time, like when I, I came on, there had been like cost of living increases every year, right? But we were below the poverty line. Um, and so we were on food stamps, um, we were on WIC, we were getting at one point help with our utility bills. Um, and yeah. with generous gifts from church members. Um, mm-hmm. yes, those people opened their, like opened their hearts and their pocketbooks to us in absolutely incredible ways. Every time David went in the hospital, we wouldn't even have to like ask, especially the older members would, um. I would just get stuff in the mail and it is what carried and us this through. Is, I remember there was one older member with whom I'd had a lot of conflict. Um, Pastor and had pitted us against each other. And so there was this, like, there was a lot of rub. I remember he showed up at our front door unannounced and he handed me a check for a dollar amount that I won't repeat. And I wept. Mm-hmm. And at the time I couldn't have said it because I didn't really know it. But in retrospect, like, that guy was loving me so well in spite of the fact that I had been a paid assassin to him. And that happened over and over and over again. These, these church members just went hard in the paint for us. But we are, I mean, at this point, we were you know, in six figures of medical debt. Mm-hmm. And collectors are calling us every single day, uh, five, six, seven times a day, every day. And um, my health is not getting better. I wonder why. Yeah. That's not stressful at all. We've tried every medication under the sun. Health insurance is starting to go, yeah, we think that you're a losing proposition. So like now it's going to get worse, right? Now the medical debt's going to get even worse Mm -hmm. Um, because now they're not wanting to cover things because they're going, well, we've tried all this stuff and it isn't working and you're not getting better, which as an aside, I love that the solution to that is, so I guess you can just die now, but that's neither here nor there. Um, And you're in your 20s. Yeah, I'm in my 20s. Mayo Clinic was supposed to be the fix. It was supposed to be the solution to this. They were going to give me the surgery and it was going to fix everything. It just made it worse. And in retrospect, part of the reason that it just made it worse was because my underlying health was awful because of the absolutely incredible stress we were under. Mm-hmm. So the church gives us this incredibly generous sabbatical. I mean, they, they, like, it was a paid sabbatical, to be clear. And on top of that paid sabbatical, we had church members showing up at our door, handing us cash, handing us checks, bringing food. I mean, just being the church, just mm-hmm. doing the thing. It was incredible. And in the middle of this incredible moment of vulnerability on our part and of us just feeling the weight of the love of our congregation— I, here I am transitioning you, sorry. <laughs> Margaret gets a call from our pastors asking, what can we do to help? And that's really where this stuff kicks off. Margaret, what was that phone call? Um, I don't remember exactly how it went, but I think they must have offered like, you know, would it, would it be helpful for us to just sit with you and hear like all the things that you know, you're thinking and feeling and pray with you. And this was my two pastors, you know, like I've literally never been as a woman growing up in extreme complementarian spaces my whole life. Like I've never been pastored like what Mm -hmm. it felt like they were offering. 
And so it felt like such a gift. And in fact, I sang their praises about the fact that they actually like ministered to a woman for years. Well, not years, I guess months after this happened. And so I met with the two pastors and I told them, because at this point, you know, I was like, I don't know if David's ever going to get better. I don't, you know, I've never been to college because we got married young. We did, we did the ministry thing. Like I, we got married young. I worked to put him through school, but like, I can't make enough money to support the three children we have if he's going to be disabled, you know, just like lots of fears. And they sat there and I cried, like ugly cried in Pastor N's living room to the two of them and Pastor N's wife for about two hours. And then they came and they stood over me and they laid hands on me and they prayed for me and they told me, we want you to know that we will always take care of you, that we love you guys, that we will never let anything. I think the line was, we're not going to let you fall. Yeah. We're not gonna let you fall. We're not going to let you be destitute. Like we're going to take care of your family. We're going to provide childcare if that's what needed. We're going to pay your groceries if that's what's needed. And aside is you guys were kind of already there. Right. Like even they were already not doing that for you, but they were like, we're not going to let you get worse than the awful that we're already have had your family in basically is what they were saying. Yeah. Well, and the, the most important thing from that conversation is a couple times in different ways, they said, David will always have a job here. Yeah. And I left that feeling so secure and so held and so loved. And I had so much respect for those two men, even though one of them, you know, we had history and there's a lot of water under the bridge. I respected the heck out of him for that night. He was the, this is worth saying. He was the little girl with the curl from the rhyme. When he was good, he was very, very good. And when he was bad, he was horrible. Yeah. This was one of those moments where yeah. he just like would come through with something that just broke your brain. Just mm -hmm. so gracious, so loving, so thoughtful, so forward thinking. I think that's really important to say because I have, you know, more than a dozen moments of that with him where I was just like, wow, he's a really, really good friend, a really good pastor, you know, like in this moment. And I think it's worth, I, I, I want to say that, like, I don't want to paint this guy as though he's some kind of psychopathic monster. He's a broken human being. Right, right. He's an incredibly damaged victim of abuse himself. Mm -hmm. And so, like, what was happening there, I think, like, were glimpses of what the man could have been. Yeah. And that's part of what frustrates me so much about this. I've said this so many times. That guy could have had such an incredible, effective, impactful, beautiful ministry. But for whatever reason, uh, he just, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. That's just it. I don't know. When he was on, he was so on. It's so, so common for these pastors that end up being potentially narcissistic, definitely have a lot of traits like that, um, authoritarian, abusive. Like it's very common that they grew up in abusive homes. We find often, I don't know if this is Pastor N, but a lot of these pastors have father wounds that are deep, deep mm -hmm. yep. wounds. Yeah, And just like anecdotally, something Jay and I have seen is 
like a reenactment of their own childhood on their congregation and on their staff. So Mm. they are just bringing those same dynamics that they grew up with, not getting therapy, just getting a seminary degree, sometimes not even getting a seminary degree and pastoring churches. And it's like when you're a parent and you have deep childhood wounds, if you do not root that stuff out, if you don't like purposely root that stuff out, name it for what it is and work towards healing that you will do that to your own children because that's what you know. You will reenact these things oftentimes. So like anecdotally, we do see that pretty across the board is these pastors come in and they're just reenacting childhood wounds onto their congregation, reenacting their father's behavior onto their Mm -hmm. congregation or their staff. I mean, it's really gracious to assume like there could have been so much beauty and goodness and that's probably true. But then we also see those glimpses of like good moments are so calculated and they come with so many strings attached that like by the end of the road, can you even call it a good glimpse of graciousness or was it all just manipulation? And that's so sad and so gross, you know, you know, in, um, the magician's nephew, there's that scene where um, Aslan sends the two kids to go get this golden fruit from this tree, and it's going to bring it's going to bring protection to Narnia, and it's going to do all these great things. And he tells them very, it's you got to go through the gate when you get there, take the fruit properly. When they get there, they find the white witch has already gotten there. She's climbed over the fence and taken the fruit and eaten it, and they're horrified. Um, to make a really long story short, they go the right way. They bring the fruit back to Aslan, and. They and Aslan tells them, um, yeah, well, she ate the fruit because she wants power. And the kids are like, oh, well, then that's not going to work, right? And he says, well, no, of course it's going to work because it must work. It has to work. And part of the reason that I love that is it establishes a principle that's often in play with these dudes. The more good a thing is, the more powerful a good a thing is, the more awful it becomes when it gets used for evil. Yeah. And this dude was gifted, he's profoundly gifted, and in, gifted in good ways. And he chose to use them for evil purposes. And because he was so powerfully gifted for good, the evil that was done was that much worse. That's a super, super poignant example. Yeah. Also, I hear that and I think about even the um, illustration of her like consuming it and how she consumed that instead of like bringing it back to Aslan. Right. To let him do what he planned on doing with it. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. So you have this in-person meeting, prayer meeting. You're, you leave it super encouraged. At this point, David um, is still on sabbatical, correct? During that, yeah. that meeting. When do you come off sabbatical and what happens with that? So during that sabbatical, I went into a deep pit. Um, I was, I mean, as much opioids as I had to take to survive. I mean, like getting through the pain of that stretch was just awful. And then I had to go through withdrawals to get off. And um, and if you've never had to do that, um, it's it's not even worth thinking about, honestly. Um, I'm you were really probably depressed. still very traumatized. Yeah. yeah. Very. And so Margaret's carrying the burden of that. Mm-hmm. But the clock's ticking. I, I want to say just one thing, which is that a lot of wives of men in ministry are married to men who are super depressed and you cannot be honest that your pastor husband is struggling with depression. Yeah. 
without threatening your ability to feed your children. And that's really hard. And it's not just withdrawals you're having. You're also experiencing extreme pain, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And it, it, it was lessening. It was getting better. Mm-hmm. But that was a relative term. Like better for me meant I'm not sweating. Yeah. You know? Gosh. You're in, cri- you're in deep, deep, deep crisis. Yeah. And Margaret, I was utterly unapproachable. I mean, like you couldn't talk to me. You couldn't say anything to me. Like I was just out of my mind. Uh, but the clock's ticking and there's beginning to be like a sense of pressure, which is subtle. And I honestly, like my memory of that time period is so bad. I don't know. I could put my finger on it and tell you what it was. It might've just been me. It might've just been my pressure to perform at that point, but there was pressure to get back to work. So you do. Yeah. You are, I think you go back with a wound vac yep. and like, he has like all this different medical apparatus hanging off of him. He's still um, on some degree of of um, bed rest, but he goes back to work and over time gets better. But your first conversation with Pastor N back from sabbatical is important. Yeah. So I think this is like my second or third week back in the office. There'd been some things. This is really the first time he and I were able to sit down and have a proper staff meeting. And we get through all the stuff and the tempo's up and like, he's happy that I'm back in the office and I'm happy to be back in the office and we're vibing and making jokes and having a good time. And then he goes... Okay, so there's one last thing we got to talk about. And that was always how trouble started. And so I'm braced up. I'm like, oh, boy. And he goes, um, so everything, like all this stuff, and he talks about, you know, the Mayo Clinic, and he goes, that can't happen again. I'm like, okay, what do you mean by that? And he says, like, we can't, like, I can't, we, 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 as a church, we can't go without you that long. Like, if that, if that continues, I don't know, I don't know what we're going to do, but like, you can't, like, you, you can't do that again. <laughs> to which I wanted to be like, you, you want, you want me to not do what again exactly? <laughs> like, what do you mean? But he never, he never said it explicitly because I don't think he had the, the guts to. But what he meant was, you know, if you get that sick again, like you can't work here anymore. And at the time, like I just, I I let that sit with me. That experience, it's worth saying, changed me. Like prior to this point, like I tended to kind of, you know, jump. Um, And if like, if I pushed back against him, I like dwelt on it and like wrote thoughts out and took like weeks to develop ideas before I'd try to like disagree with him about something. There was something about this experience at Mayo that just, I don't know. It killed some level of care in me to not just immediately push back and say, this isn't right. And it might just be that, you know, nearly dying a couple times will do that to you. You're tired. Yeah, I was exhausted and I just didn't have the energy to do it with him. And so I was like, look, I don't know exactly what you mean by that. But look, man, if it ever gets to the point that I can't do my job, you're not going to get any resistance from me. Like if I legit can't do my job, like I'm out. And that seemed to satisfy him, and we moved on. But I did something with after that conversation that I've never done, that I hadn't done with him before. I filed it away because there was just again something changed in me after the Mayo thing, where I just something smelled like we'd we'd gone past me being like, okay, this is just I've got to submit to my pastor and submit to God and so on and so forth. We had just suffered enough and been through enough and I'd seen him pull enough stuff that like coming back felt like a little bit of a reset in in how I intended to relate to him. And I decided in that moment, as I filed that away, I'm not doing this with you. 
I'm going to pastor. Yeah. And if you want to get in the way of me pastoring, we're going to have to have, like, we're going to have to have that out. And that was, I, did, I didn't really know it at the time, but I think he could tell that my attitude had shifted to, and that was the beginning of the end. It's interesting because that really then puts more intentionality or his real intentions on the conversation with Margaret when he said, you have a job here, like you're going to have a job here. Really, you know, no, you were going to have a job if you met certain conditions, which means that the the statement to you, Margaret, sounds more calculated now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Planned out. Yeah. And and it's a weird flex to go to somebody who's just had all of these health problems that are out of their control and tell them, well, actually, they're not out of, well, they are out of your control, but he is the reason you were having health problems, right? Or one of the main I'm reasons. Like, yeah. So he know, does he know that stress is a reason? He does. And this and here's where this gets crazy, right? Like he knew that and he wanted to preserve and protect the resource. So he made me account for every hour I worked. I had to submit itemized like every quarter. I had to submit this itemized schedule to him for how I was going to spend my time. And to be clear, it did not just include work hours. I had to submit an itemized schedule to him if I was going to spend my work hours. I was going to spend my time studying, trying to get through Bible college on poverty wages, like below the poverty line wages, how I was going to spend my personal time and how I was going to spend my volunteer time working for the church. Oh my gosh. And his stated reason for this was, I'm trying to help you manage your stress. You got to manage your time better. I'm working 50, 55 hours a week And you're asking me to do all this busy work to satisfy your idea of what stress relief looks like for me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was the kind of crazy stuff he would do in response to me explaining like, yeah, stress does not help. Oh, my gosh. So you have that conversation. You go on pastoring. Mm -hmm. Pastor N still continues to be Pastor N. Your health, where is it at during this time? Stable. Not fun, but stable. Okay. Yeah, the next year, once you get back from sabbatical, is pretty quiet health-wise. And I would say that year after you get back from sabbatical is one of our best years in ministry. Probably because you made that shift within yourself. I'm in a pastor, and I'm not going to be scared, and I'm not going to walk on eggshells and tiptoe around it. I'm going to be a shepherd. Yeah. And I also think, A, we were older. We started way too young in retrospect. And secondly, we'd been through so much suffering that we got really good at sitting and suffering with other people. So needed. And Margaret was just doing absolutely incredible stuff at this point, as far as just ministering was concerned. I mean, you had taught a, a women's Sunday school class that just, I, I saw women go in there and come out like alive on the other end, just like enlivened to Jesus and enlivened to scripture. And Margaret was running point on that with, you know, three kids and a chronically ill husband and, you know, like taking her food stamps to the grocery store on the weekend to, you know, make it all happen. It was just crazy. Um, it was a, it was a wonderful year in so many ways. And, and a lot of that had to do with, um, with Margaret's commitment to what, like how she was gifted and to sort of discharging those things, even in the face of literally every economic and social reason not to. So we go into 2018. So that would be 2017 then, right? 2017 was a good, uh, relatively good year considering, and then 2018, there's an emergency surgery, correct? At the very end of the year. Very end of yeah. the year. What happened there? Yeah, so we have our 
five-year anniversary with the church, which is super sweet. And three weeks later, David starts to show some signs of being sick. And then it was like mid-November, his stoma starts dying. He goes into emergency surgery. He almost dies. He stays um, in this place between life and death for a number of days. And then he comes home eventually. I think it was like five, I think it was, it was actually like surprisingly short given how dramatic it, it was. was. It was only five days. Five days in the hospital. But he comes home with 190 stitches through his abdomen. Just so, so broken. It was it was ugly, um, but what was strange about it was that, as far as hospitalizations go, like it was not nearly as bad as it could have been. But I had the sense that something was wrong because normally at this time there were four other elders. There's five elders total, David and four others. I had gone to church on the Sunday while David was in the hospital, and the elders had like a avoided me, not talked to me, which was weird. And then I normally was getting text messages from them, checking up on us, and I wasn't. And so then I I texted them to let them know what was going on, and the responses seemed really short. So I was starting to get super anxious. And you at this time are also like, is my husband going to die? Yes. I was like, okay, is my husband going to die? If he lives, is it going to be as if he died because he loses this job and that might kill him? Mm -hmm. And how do I feed my kids? And how do I do anything right now? Right. And not just that, not just the job, but like the church. You needed them to come be pastors for you. You needed that care and support. Like you needed them in the waiting room with you. And I had them. Like, that's the thing that sucks so much is I had them. I can tell you exactly who was in the waiting room with me for every single moment of all the fiascos of all the times that David almost died. I can tell you exactly who was there. I can tell you who brought me meals when I was the scaredest. I can tell you, like, the thing is that the members of the church were doing the best they could, Mm -hmm. but there was leadership issues. Mm. And I think that was part of, because, you know, we have, like I have parents, David has parents, but if I was, if something were to happen to David, either he were to die or he were to lose his job, I knew we would have to lean on his, on his parents or my parents really hard. And they were not local. That meant that I would have to leave this support system to go lean on one that would probably be able to hold us better just because it's family. And the thought of leaving this church literally made me ill. I could not imagine life after this church. And there were probably like some unhealthy reasons in both, because I was the same way. Like we probably both had some unhealthy reasons for that, but a lot of it was just that these church members had loved us so well. It was the first place in my life that I had felt safe. I did not have good church background growing up. I had been excommunicated from a church at 16 years old. I didn't want to have to go through trusting and finding a safe place again. Like I wanted them to be my safe place forever. So you're feeling all this anxiety. Did anybody contact you during this? Yeah, I had a a church member of a very respected 
a very respected church member came over and brought a meal and I was talking to her and I told her my fears and she was like, I don't ever want to hear you say that again. This church will never, we will never fire you. Like you do not have to worry about your job. You will always have a job here. We love you so much. Like this church has your back. And I took so much hope in that. And then I think it was like, the day David got home from the hospital was a members meeting at the church and they approved David for a... It was, a, it was an obscene raise. $10,000 raise? Close. It was a huge raise. And I was like, thank you, Lord. Like, okay. Which brought you to like... A livable yeah. wage. <sighs> yeah, that took us out. That took us out of out of poverty. It took us well out of. I mean, we were. I had I had gotten um, I'd gotten a small raise that had gotten us right to the poverty line a couple like a couple years prior to that. Um, and so this took us well out of that. And that was it was incredible. I was going to be able to cancel our food stamps. I remember going to David after we got the news for the the raise and being like, okay, like encouraging him with it, like. We can stay. Like, there is a job for you here. They do value your work. Like, like this is this is huge. We can actually, like, make it work here. We don't have to lose the security we've been building over the last, you know, five years. But, so Margaret's had this conversation with me, and that, I think it was the same day, like, something just, I don't know, something was not sitting right with and me. And how quickly, how soon out of the hospital did you guys have this conversation? It was not like, yeah, it was like three days. Three days out. So you're like in bed having this conversation. He's not even in bed yet. He's on the couch. He can, he can walk to the bathroom, but that's yep. it. Now, where this gets interesting is that at about the same time, my surgeon calls me. And he says, hey, man, so, you know, we're looking at your underlying, because I've been, I mean, had to go in every day, right? I mean, going in to, like, get blood work done, get checked on, weigh me, all that stuff. And after a couple of days of me being on the couch, he goes, hey, man, I, I think, like, obviously, like, take it easy. Don't lift anything. But, like, your job isn't super, like, physically demanding. I think you can go back to work. And I was thrilled. Yeah. Um, absolutely thrilled. Because, I mean... Most of what I did could be done from just about anywhere other than the leading worship component. Yeah. Um, and I had worked pretty hard to train up a couple of guys to to do that role when I physically couldn't. And they were good at it. Um, awesome dudes. Anyway, but so he told me that and we'd had this conversation about this raise thing. And I thought, I'm going to I'm going to see what the temperature of the water is. So I texted Pastor Ann and I said, hey, man, good news. I've been cleared to get back to work, so I can be there on Sunday. And he texted me back and he goes, hey, man, like, don't worry about it. Your job's not at risk. You just worry about getting 100%. You come back when you're at 100%. I still have that text message. Like, I got receipts, baby. <laughs> and, and we get a phone call yeah. from another elder who says, congratulations on the raise. We love you guys so much. You've been such a great service to the church, we'd like to come over tomorrow night and visit with you and encourage you and pray for you and talk about David's future on staff. Like within within days of each other. And what do you think about that? I'm thinking it's fine. I'm refusing. I'm refusing to entertain anything other than this because I'm feeling like I've had enough assurance at this point that everything's fine. Yeah. It seems like all of the communication up until this point is 
all indications that you are going to be fine here. You just you just got a raise. So Margaret, you're taking that or you're feeling that way. David, what were you thinking about that? I was both furious and terrified because I knew exactly what it meant. And what do you think made you know what that meant? It was it was funnily enough, it was the person who sent it to me. Mm. He was one of our elders and a really like cerebral, quiet, thoughtful guy. And he was very often tasked with delivering messages that required a lot of precision and care because he's a wordsmith, very gifted thinker, very gifted writer. And the fact that he was the one that sent that to me told me that this had been wordsmithed. Mm. If it had, because there were two guys, like if it had really just been like, hey man, let's talk about how we're going to like get you back on board and all that stuff, it would have been one of the other guys. But he sent it. It was flowery. Yeah, it was very carefully crafted because that's just how he's been. Like, I, I, I genuinely don't think that he had any particular ill intent. He was doing what I used to be asked to do, put the knife in nice and slow. And so he was just, do, he was just doing it and I'm sure doing it in good faith. But I knew because it was him. So the next day they planned to come over in the evening after the kids were in bed, but I couldn't put the kids down because daddy had just been through a hospitalization and they were just breathing all of the cortisol in the air. And so they wouldn't go to sleep unless we were in bed with them. And so I put them and they were so little at this point, they were like two, four and five. Um, I put them in front of a movie on my laptop in the adjacent room. David is lying prone with 190 stitches in his abdomen. I answer the front door. The four of them come in. I bring them downstairs to our basement. And I think there's like 30 seconds of niceties and small talk. And then they said they have something they want to share. And the youngest elder starts reading a pre-written letter. What did that statement say? Do you guys, did you get a copy of that statement? Mm-hmm. Oh, they handed you it? Yeah, they actually emailed it. They emailed it out to the whole <sighs> church. I mean, they um, the version that, that was read to us was much longer, but a good portion of it was sent to the whole church. Okay. And what did that statement say? It said that lots of nice things like, we've been great. We love you. Blah, 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 blah. We're so glad that you're out of the hospital and you're doing well. But the elders have met... And we have decided that it is best for you and it is best for us if David no longer serves as a pastor, as a a pastor on staff at our church. And then it went on to say things like, we have given you guys so much. We've supported you through so much. And I just don't think we just have decided that it's not reasonable for you to expect us to continue to support you through this anymore. We think it'll be better for you guys to find something else. And I don't even remember everything that was in the letter. It was, it felt like forever. (laughs) It felt like he was reading for 500 years. I was sobbing, like choking sobbing. I was seeing like our house is attached to this. Every friend that I have is attached to this. This is going to destroy this church that I love. This is going to destroy my husband. I thought that I was happy because he, uh, you know, 
had lived and had come through this awful thing, but it feels like right now, it feels like I'm watching him die. My kids were in the other room and they could hear us, they could hear me crying. And so they came in and were crying and he didn't stop reading. No one, like the whole family is weeping and there wasn't like a getting of tissues or a putting a hand on the back or a pausing to like, let us breathe and catch our breath. And I'm five months pregnant at this time. And so I'm thinking, wait, where am I going to deliver my baby? How am I going to pay for maternity care? Like, how am I going to find a job at five months pregnant with a disabled husband? How am I going to pay for childcare so that I can go to that job? David cannot stay home with four little children in his condition. If he's not capable of sitting at a computer and doing pastoring work, he's certainly not capable of watching three little children. I'm just shocked and hurt and feeling betrayed and just feeling like I have no no idea how to make these men that I know want to care well for me. I just like I'm seeing all the ways that they're not going to understand what they just did. Wow. So that moment you're still thinking you don't mean to do what you're doing. Yes. Oh. David, what are you thinking? You're laying on the couch. Are you even able to process what's happening in that moment, even a little bit? I, I went like full blown fight or flight. So like that was some of the clearest thinking that I had done in a while, actually. Um, it, I don't know how to explain it except to say that like I could see it laid out in front of me like a map. Here's exactly how this happened. Here's who said what. Here's how all this was communicated. Here's who presented the idea. Here's who wordsmithed what. Here's who wrote this part of this statement. Like all this is coming into my head as we went because I know the playbook. I'd been in those rooms where we, you know, had to work through all kinds of things. I was feeling a combination of angry and betrayed. And also in this very like cold focused, I'm going to survive and I'm, and I'm going to make sure that my wife and kids survive the next two hours. And then we're going to figure out what to do after that. But for now, we're going to get out of this room in one piece. And it was in in retrospect utterly inhuman. Um, I, I'm not proud of that at all. Um, I wish that I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what I wish I would have felt, but that's what I felt. I was mad and extremely focused. Your body did what it was created by God to do. It protected itself in that moment. There's nothing wrong yeah. with what you did there. So I I went. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't move to get physically closer to Margaret. Mm. Um, she was at the other end of the couch, just kind of stuck where I was at. And so I did the, the only thing I could do, which was started taking notes. And the minute I did that, Pastor Inn's body language changed. This has been part one of a two-part series, and you don't have to wait to get the second episode. It's alive right now. So go hit that subscribe button and make sure not to miss the ending of this story. Thank you for daring to listen.